0: Our scripture reading this morning is found in your Pew Bibles on page 414 and it is Esther 6:14 through 7:10. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, "'What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled.' Then Queen Esther answered, "'If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish.' And my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he? "'Who has dared to do this?' "'And Esther said, "'A foe and an enemy, "'This wicked Haman!' "'Then Haman was terrified "'before the king and the queen. "'And the king arose in his wrath "'from the wine-drinking "'and went into the palace garden. "'But Haman stayed to beg for his life "'from Queen Esther, "'for he saw that harm was determined "'against him by the king.' And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, The gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated.
1: Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We confess how desperately we need it. How lost we'd be apart from it. And so, Father, we pray that you would guide us with your word today. This word that is the word of Christ. This word that, when it's preached, causes saints to be made more like Christ and causes sinners to confess their sin and to repent and believe the gospel, would you please do mighty work through the preaching of your word today. We thank you for what this word is going to teach us concerning Christ and his death and his resurrection and his soon return. Father, would you please accompany this preaching by your Holy Spirit's power for our good and for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever heard the phrase, hoist with his own petard. Pastor Caleb, in typical fashion, mocked me for using that phrase in conversation this past week. You know, the office staff, incidentally, really gives me quite a hard time. You should know that. But hoist with his own petard, it refers to a person being blown up by his own bomb. It's another way of saying he got beat at his own game. That phrase comes from Shakespeare's famous tragedy, Hamlet. At one point in that play, Hamlet's former schoolmates, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, you remember those fellas, they're sent by the king of Denmark to England. And they're carrying a letter from the king of Denmark to the English king with instructions to kill Hamlet. So Hamlet gets word of the plot, says to his mother that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are going to be hoist with his own petard. So Hamlet escapes from the ship bound for England, manages to replace their letter spelling his doom with one that instructs the king of England to kill Rosencrantz and Guildenstern instead. And so the very ship that those two think is taking them to carry out Hamlet's death instead is sailing them to their very own destruction while Hamlet goes free. Quite the reversal of fortunes. Something like that is going on in the book of Esther this morning. We have before us another ironic reversal. Esther is a fascinating story. It's a historical one. It's a real one, to be sure. It's a fascinating one, and it's brilliantly told. And I want you to listen carefully this morning as we consider the details of this story. Because what happens to Esther and Mordecai and the Jews and the way that the Jews respond to what happens to them, to their reversal of fortunes, turns out to have a lot to do with you. It turns out that you're supposed to act like the Jews act when the same thing happens to you as happens to them. But what is it that happens to the Jews? And how do they act in response? Well, let's get to our text and find out. Beginning in chapter 6, And verse 14. Now, as Pastor West preached last week, his text ended, leaving us with significant, unresolved tension. Tension that's going to get resolved this week in our text. Queen Esther has asked her husband, King Ahasuerus, ruler of the Persian Empire, which stretched from India to Ethiopia, if she might be able to throw a feast for him and for his chief court official, Haman. Haman you'll recall, has been conspiring to annihilate all the Jews in the Persian Empire because one of the Jews, Queen Esther's relative, Mordecai, won't pay to Haman the homage that he thinks he deserves. And so just before our text, Haman has just had to give enormous honor to Mordecai, the very Jew that Haman hates. And he had to give honor to him because years before, Mordecai foiled a plot to assassinate the king. And as the curtain now rises on the scene that's before us in our text today, Haman is back with King Ahasuerus and Queen Esther for round two of Queen Esther's feast. Heather read for you earlier what took place. The king is pleased with this feast that his wife has prepared. And as he has some wine, he asks his queen what she Wishes in response to so pleasing a feast. And her request is simple. Her and her people, the Jews, are under an edict of death. They stand to be, chapter 7 and verse 4 says, destroyed, killed, annihilated. And so Esther intercedes, not only for her own rescue, but notice that she intercedes for her people. She says, let my life be granted for, uh, me for my wish and My people for my request, that's chapter 7 and verse 3. We have been sold, I and my people. Esther intercedes for her people. And then notice in verses 5 and 6, the king's question to Esther in verse 5 is a curious one. He says, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? This edict that Esther is asking to be rescued from. The king wonders, who's responsible for this? And it's a curious question because it was to this king, you'll recall, that Haman made the request to have issued the very edict that Esther's talking about. The king gave Haman permission, even gave Haman the king's signet ring to put the royal seal of approval on the edict. Nevertheless, at now hearing that it's his queen, Esther, and her people who are in the edict's crosshairs, The king wants to know who's dared to do such a thing. And then, it's like the scene in a movie when the star witness stands up to point a finger at the accuser. Esther says, A foe an enemy, this wicked Haman! For much of this book, it looks like Haman had successfully schemed to receive honor from those in Susa, the capital of Persia. Haman thought he had arrived... He's invited to a feast thrown by the queen with only a two-person guest list, himself and the king. But Queen Esther's feast wasn't designed to honor Haman. It was a web in which to snare him. So instead of being honored, wicked Haman is exposed. But Haman getting something unexpected has only just begun. As the king leaves in his wrath, Haman desperately, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 7, starts to plead for his life with the queen. Why not? He's already seen the king receive his wife's intercession from one people under penalty of death, so he thinks maybe she can work her magic again. What a stupid fool Haman is. The queen knows Haman is the mastermind behind the edict that would annihilate her and every other Jew. But as Haman is desperately pleading with Esther, throwing himself on the couch where the queen reclined, the king walks back in. Not only has Haman plotted to destroy the queen and her people, but now as it looks to the king, Haman is trying to ravish the queen. So the king's attendants who were nearby, they hear the king's anger, and they prepare Haman for the punishment that surely awaits him. One of the king's eunuchs reminds the king, that the gallows which Haman had constructed for Mordecai's public execution are still standing at Haman's house. Seventy-five feet high, these gallows. About as high as a seven-story building. I know we've got a lot of kids in the room today. Kids, this gallows was as high as three giraffes stacked on top of each other. Isn't that crazy? Seventy-five feet high. The one who would hang on these gallows was intended to be a public spectacle. So the king says, good thinking, Harbona. Nice idea. Let's hang him on that. And then note the irony. Note the explicit reversal of fortunes that we see in verse 10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. So they hanged Haman On the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. What the enemy of God's people built for Mordecai's destruction ended up being the place where his wicked schemes came to nothing. And his destruction was the public spectacle. The mocking death that he intended for Mordecai came to him at his house on the gallows he had built. And then the king's wrath abated. Let's pick up the story at verse one of chapter eight. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes... Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces, from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers, riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Well, not only does Haman get hanged on the very gallows he built for Mordecai, the king gives Haman's estate, all of his land, all of his possessions, to Esther. What once belonged to Haman, dead, humiliated, Haman now belongs to the one Haman would have slain. And the king learns of Mordecai's relation to his queen. The Mordecai, you'll remember, who the royal records show saved the king's life. And the king gives his signet ring to Mordecai, signaling that Mordecai had taken Haman's place as the king's second in command. And Esther gives Haman's estate to Mordecai. Do you see what the Lord has orchestrated? The one who Haman would have destroyed now owns Haman's estate and rules over the people and land over which Haman formerly ruled. And now, with the death of the writer of the first edict, the edict for the Jews' destruction now accomplished, Esther intercedes for her people once again. She interceded for Haman's death Now she's going to intercede for the Jews' life. She goes into the king's throne room. We saw back in chapter 4 that anyone who goes into the king's throne room unbidden faces penalty of death unless the king holds out his golden scepter to that person. Esther tearfully pleads for the lives of her people. Her intercession is motivated again by her people. Verse 6 of chapter 8 says, how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Esther is interceding on behalf of her people and her intercession is successful. Ahasuerus tells the queen and the newly exalted Mordecai that they can write a new edict. Just as the king told Haman back in chapter 3, to write whatever edict Haman wanted to write and affix the king's seal to it. Now some of you who have been following along carefully might have this question. What do you do with the fact that this book told us back in chapter 1 and verse 19, and it's going to say it again to us in chapter 8, that a law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be repealed? So we've got Mordecai and Esther apparently receiving Royal permission to repeal an edict for the Jews' destruction that carried the king's seal. Well, apparently the Persian kings had a way of dealing with the tradition that a law of the Medes and Persians couldn't be revoked. The first edict doesn't get revoked, but without revoking an earlier law, the king would do what we see here. He would issue a new edict that effectively counteracts the previous one. That's what's going on here. So beginning in verse 9, we see that Mordecai gets to work, leading the king's scribes and writing a new edict that would go out, just as the first one did, to all 127 provinces of the Persian Empire, from India to where Malad and his family will be this week, Ethiopia. If you know your geography, you know this is an enormous swath of land. And the edict announced that King Ahasuerus was allowing the Jews in every city to get together to defend themselves against those who would seek to destroy and kill and annihilate them, according to the first edict, and then even to plunder their enemies' goods. And all of this was to be done when? I hope this hasn't escaped you. Chapter 8 and verse 12 says, On the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. When was Haman's diabolical plan for the Jews' destruction supposed to take place? Chapter 3 and verse 13 says, On the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, the same day the Jews had circled on their calendar as the day of their death, their destruction. That day would become for them the day when they gained victory over their enemies and plunder their enemies' goods. The day of death and defeat became for them the day of life and victory. And plenty, and so, all the king's horses and all the king's men saddle up and ride out to distribute this edict throughout the empire. This edict which carries on it the seal of the king. And in verses 15 through 17, we see the Jews' response to this new edict. It's unbridled jubilation. But before we get there, have a look at Mordecai in verse 15. The one who... Had the fiery hatred of the second most powerful person in the empire fixed on him, Mordecai, who not only had the penalty of death hanging over his head, but who had also catalyzed, as it seemed, the death of not only himself, but every one of his fellow descendants of Abraham from India to Ethiopia. And now look at Mordecai. His enemy has been hanged on the gallows constructed for Mordecai. And this one, who, as chapter 4 begins, wails and mourns in Susa in torn clothes and sackcloth and ashes, now goes through Susa wearing royal robes of blue and white and a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And he receives the city's acclaim with shouts and rejoicing. And the Jews, who throughout the empire in chapter 4 were mourning, and fasting, and weeping, and lamenting, laying in sackcloth and ashes in response to the first edict. How do we see them now? They have, as one translation put it, radiant happiness and joyous honor. And everywhere, mourning has been replaced with gladness and joy. Their fasting has been replaced with feasting. Their sackcloth and ashes replaced with holiday. And as pagan inhabitants of the Persian kingdom looked on and heard the edict. These guys knew the score. They converted. Probably not with genuine faith in the Lord, but because it seemed like a good time to be a Jew in the Persian Empire. (laughs) The Bible says fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Maybe the inhabitants of the empire had learned that a Jew had become the king's right-hand man. And when you have a king who's as out to lunch, as a Ahasuerus often seems to be, that's a pretty important position. Talk about a reversal of fortunes. So that's what happened in Persia around 480 B.C., as recorded in the book of Esther up to chapter 8 and verse 17. But Jesus wants you to know there's a fuller sense to this text that you mustn't miss. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus said to his disciples just after his resurrection, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, or another way to refer to the Psalms here is the writings of which the Psalms is a part, of which Esther is a part. Jesus says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus says that his cross and his resurrection and the preaching of the gospel that would come after are foretold in the Old Testament, are written of in the Old Testament. So what's written about Jesus and Esther? Esther. Specifically, what's written about Jesus in the portion of Esther that we're looking at today turns out a lot. First, notice that Esther's intercession typifies Christ's intercession. I'm just following along on the sermon outline that we've placed in your bulletin. Now, when I say typifies, I mean that Esther's intercession is in the Bible because it teaches us about Christ's intercession, and so, what characterized Esther's intercession? Well, she intercedes to the all sovereign ruler. In Esther's case, Ahasuerus. In Jesus' case, God the Father. That makes Ahasuerus, in this instance, a type, a shadow of God the Father. Esther intercedes to the one who could bring the salvation, the deliverance that she was pleading for, for her people. So, too, with the one of whom Esther is a type, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has interceded for his people, and according to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, intercedes right now for his people to the Father. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Esther's intercession, as I say, was for the life of her people. Remember in chapter 8, when Esther is pleading for her people's rescue from calamity and destruction, she echoes the prayer that Jesus would pray on the cross with his dying breath. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Jesus is on the cross interceding, praying for the forgiveness of those who were party to his death that he knew were among his people, his elect. He intercedes to the Father for their life. You know, if Haman's plan had come to fruition if every Jew in all 127 provinces of the Persian Empire, from India to Ethiopia, had come to pass, I think we can conclude that God's promise to Abraham is rendered null and void. And so, as you see God orchestrate events in the book of Esther, among the things that God is accomplishing, chiefly salvation for his people, but notice that the salvation for his people is going to come by God keeping covenant with uh, keeping covenant with Abraham, being faithful to the promise he made to Abraham, to make of him a nation, to give him descendants that can't be counted, the greater than the sands on the shore or the stars in the heavens. God has foiled Haman's plan because he means to keep his promise to Abraham. Esther stands between the ruler and the people. She's their advocate, their representative. She petitions the ruler for their rescue. In all those ways, Esther is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who interceded and intercedes even now to the Father for his people, those who have faith in him, that we may be saved from eternal death. Notice too that Haman's defeat typifies Satan's defeat. What immeasurable hatred Satan has for God and for his people. Jesus says Satan wants to steal and kill and destroy. Peter says that Satan's a a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. John likens him to a dragon. Satan has as his aim the total destruction of God's people, but at the cross at the moment when from a human perspective things looked at their very worst, Christ was accomplishing that which would bring to nothing Satan's plans to destroy God's people. On the very death device that Satan conspired in the hearts and minds of wicked men to bring about the most evil act the world has ever known, the crucifixion of the Son of God, on that very death device came the death of all of Satan's schemes. With the cross and the empty tomb, God sounded the death knell for all of Satan's plans to do evil to God's people. Haman was among the seed of the serpent as we talked about last week. That serpent seed or offspring mentioned in Genesis 3.15. So as one of the seed of the serpent, Haman was the enemy of God's people, but all of Haman's craftiness was for naught. God foiled his plans and even turned them around on to Haman. Haman's defeat typifies Satan's defeat. Mordecai's enthronement typifies Christ's enthronement. Mordecai is set over the house of Haman. What once belonged to Haman came to belong to Mordecai. This typifies Christ's conquering of Satan at the cross and in the resurrection. Many of those who were once following the prince of the power of the air, as Paul writes to the Ephesians, that is, many who were subjects of Satan's wicked kingdom have been purchased by Christ, redeemed, Ransomed, made adopted sons, as Paul says to the Colossians. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have the redemption, uh, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so, these who were once slaves to sin, indeed slaves to Satan, are now slaves of righteousness, slaves of Christ. And Mordecai is going around from sackcloth and ashes to royal robes and a crown and fine linen and purple. That typifies Christ's cross work and subsequent exaltation, doesn't it? Do you remember the Christ hymn in Philippians 2? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This being clothed in flesh, taking the form of a slave, dying on a cross, that's all sackcloth and ashes stuff. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. After Christ was brought low as the sin-atoning sacrifice for his people, suffering an ignoble death as a public spectacle, suffering as the object of the Father's unadulterated wrath toward his people, after the sackcloth and ashes of the cross came royal robes and a crown for Christ. For the one greater than Mordecai, after being brought low in the incarnation and crucifixion, he was exalted to the highest place, enthroned as we saw in Hebrews, as the son king at the father's right hand. The Jews' deliverance typifies the church's deliverance. The Jews in the Persian Empire had Haman's edict of death hanging over them, and so too did you, brother and sister in Christ. Jesus said in John 3, Whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You, Christian, before Christ saved you, you were dead to rights You were literally guilty as sin, bound for hell, bound for destruction. And then the good news got to you. Someone delivered to you an edict that said, though you once had a penalty of death on you, you've now been rescued. You won't die. You get to live. I want to unpack that more in just a bit when we look to apply this text. But the deliverance these Jews experience is only a type of the deliverance that the church has experienced. And types are mere shadows of the things they typify. The anti-type, the fulfillment, the substance, is greater than the shadow. Notice that the Jews' joy typifies our joy, church, at having passed from death to life, as the Apostle John puts it. It's a real joy. They experience real joy, you see, In verse 17, even though all things still weren't as good for the Jews as they were going to be, remember, they're still in exile. The setting for this story is Susa. Jerusalem is still under Persian control. Those are all curses for failing to keep covenant with God. And remember, the defeat and plunder of their enemies hasn't yet happened. It's been promised by the one who can deliver on that promise, but it hasn't yet happened. Nevertheless, there's still rapturous joy like you'd expect from those who've been rescued from death and promised the conquering and plundering of their enemies so as we think about how to apply this text I want to unpack the Jews joy and their deliverance first their deliverance brother and sister again the Jews deliverance typifies your deliverance And that means that your deliverance is the greater deliverance. Your death sentence was worse than the Jews' death sentence. Their death sentence, as awful as it was, was simply death, the cessation of physical life. But what was the sentence that hung over your head, Christian? Not only physical death, but eternal death, separation from God, eternal conscious torment. The death sentence that had been issued to you would make you long for the death sentence that the Jews in Persia faced. When their enemy killed them, it was over. At least from their enemy's perspective. But your death, Christian, your eternal death, the second death, had God not intervened, would have been never-ending. Make no mistake about it. You had the greater the worst death sentence handed down concerning you. And therefore, you've experienced the greater deliverance. What deliverance did these Jews experience in Esther? It's a marvelous deliverance, to be sure. I don't want to make light of it. But just because they were rescued from death, sanctioned by the king and performed at the hands of their enemies, doesn't mean they actually escaped death ultimately. It just means they escaped this death. All of the Jews who escaped from the first edict later died of something else. They still faced turmoil and despair and famine and unmet expectations and unmet longings and all the rest. They had a magnificent rescue. But it's only a type of your rescue. Yours is the greater rescue. Not only because yours was the worst death sentence, but also because your reward is the greater reward. When you were rescued from death, brother and sister, you were given eternal life. Amen. Eternal life that's already begun. You weren't just rescued by some faraway king who doesn't know you or care about you. You were rescued by the king who's adopted you into the, to his family, who's abolished the sentence of death that was against you. You were rescued by this king and placed in his family. He's added a seat for you at his banqueting table. And this king promises to cause you to live with him eternally in paradise. Now, when the Lord Jesus appears... The very day when you formerly would have been judged and thrown into the lake of fire, you instead will be raised up, given an incorruptible body, and live eternally face-to-face with King Jesus himself. I'm saying to you, brother and sister, the reversal of fortunes for you has been greater than even it was for these Jews whose death date became their conquest date. Yours was the worst death sentence, and yours is the greater deliverance. Therefore, brother and sister, yours ought to be the greater joy. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And all of that over a deliverance that's only a type of the one that you've begun to experience. So I ask you, Christian, how's your joy this morning? Is it diminished because of circumstances? Surely many of these Jews who were rejoicing went home to difficult circumstances. But all of that was overwhelmed by the good news that had gotten to them of their destruction giving way to their victory. So how about you? How's your joy? When your joy over having been the recipient of a rescue like the one that you've received, eternal death and anguish and torment replaced by eternal life with Christ in paradise, when your joy meter because of those things is running low, you've either forgotten what you've been rescued from or you've forgotten what you've been rescued to. And so if that's you today, ask God to help you. Ask him to give you mercy. Ask him to give you grace not to have life's remaining difficulties overwhelm the joy of the salvation that he's brought to you in his son. Yours was the greater death sentence. And through Christ's death and resurrection, who endured that death sentence on your behalf, yours is now the greater deliverance to the greater life, to eternal life. And so, of course, yours ought to be the greater joy. And one day, you will be as joyous as you wish you were. When Christ returns, there will be the festal joy and laughter that we we know we ought to be feeling right now, but we're still in Persia for now, aren't we? We're not home yet. The edict's good news has been pronounced. We've received it by faith, but we haven't yet been full partakers in all of its benefits. Nevertheless, let me urge you, brother and sister, to fight for gospel joy now and to long for the day when your joy shall be made complete at God's right hand. Second, believer, by way of application, I want to tell you to get on your horse. Chapter 8 and verse 14 says, that The king's couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, and they rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. Now what were these couriers communicating? They were telling of the king's edict that the Jews who would have been annihilated under the first edict will instead be free to kill any of their enemies and to plunder their belongings. And so with that news, these couriers wrote out hurriedly. They wrote out, the Bible says, urged by the king's command. And I say to you, brother and sister, that our king has issued just such a command that ought to urge us. He says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Isaiah says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So, Christian, go bring good news of happiness. Go and publish salvation. And I don't know exactly what that means for each of you. Maybe that means that you need to go to seminary, young man, young single man, young husband. Maybe that means, young man, young woman, married couple, even older married couple, you need to go to the foreign mission field as a missionary. Maybe, older saints, that means your retirement looks different from the leisure you had planned. And you can find out how you can be helpful to a missionary, as the Distlers are going to do for John and Elise Wang in Japan, or a church planter or a revitalizer. Now, we were talking earlier about Redeemer Fellowship Church, the church we planted in Watertown, Massachusetts, and their attendance is not what anyone there would like for it to be. And yet, Pastor Eric just keeps sending people out to help church plants and to help church revitalizations his right-hand man, Andrew Belli. Do you know what just happened with Andrew? Andrew just took a call to pastor Evangelical Baptist Church in Newton, Massachusetts. And Redeemer Fellowship, Joy, uh, Redeemer Fellowship Church is overjoyed at sending Andrew and Emily Belli and their children out to this huge neighborhood, Newton, Massachusetts, but that is so spiritually dark. This is what I'm talking about. I rejoice at hearing stories from our churches about how people are getting this vision to be used by God to go and publish salvation. Look for ways to interact with people, to invite them to church. I was thrilled to see last Sunday a man attend our church that I saw at Starbucks a few weeks ago. He had on a University, sweat, uh, a university of Georgia sweatshirt when he came in to the Starbucks, so he was a goner immediately. <laughs> so I say go dogs to him. And he walks past, and I feel a little embarrassed. But then he, it's like, yeah, I did just hear someone say go dogs to me in Vermont. So he turns around, and we get to talking, and he introduces himself, and we talk. And he came to church last week. Now, he's, he's not a long-termer here in Vermont. He'll be moving soon. I think about our sister Heather, who shared last week. The fellow beside her on the plane had earbuds in, but... Heather realized the edict that had been issued against him and she realized the good news that she was able to hold out and so she was persistent. Maybe you invite somebody to mom connections or to a men's night or to youth group or to campus impact. Maybe you just make sure you've got ultimate questions with you to hand to someone you have a brief conversation with. You seek to share the gospel because you know what edict has been handed down on the person you're talking to, even if they don't, and you know what good news you have for them. This is wonderful. This is glorious news. This is good news. Isaiah says it's news of peace. It's good news of happiness. It's news of salvation. It's news to those elect who haven't yet repented and believed. Your God reigns. And so get on your horse, Christian, whatever that looks like for you, and get to riding. Get this marvelous edict out that God's son has come into the world to save sinners by his death and resurrection. And lastly, to my unbelieving friends, I urge you to take a cue from these non-Jews in the Persian Empire who, when they saw what was going on, they realized that this good news for the Jews meant bad news for them. And they realized that they needed to get in on what was going on with the Jews. The Bible says many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And I want to ask you, you friends of mine who are not Christians, I want to ask you, do you have the sense that these wicked pagans had? Do you apprehend the death sentence that hangs over your head? the day that will be such a marvelous day of victory for all who belong to Christ, that very day will be to you a day when your worst nightmares are realized. It's the day when you will face the wrath of the Lamb of God. It's the day when you'll cry out for the very mountains to fall on you and crush you, Revelation says, because that would be a better fate and facing the wrath of the Lamb. So non-Christian, I ask you to just consider all the people in this room, those to whom the gospel has come as wonderful news and reckon that you are on the outside looking in at that. And ask God to make you one of his people. Ask God to give you the grace to turn from your sin and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from eternal death, to give you peace with God and his people, to give you eternal life in his son. Christ Memorial Church, the Jews' death sentence paled in comparison to the one that was once over you. And their deliverance pales in comparison to the one you've received. So let us, therefore, have joy beginning now and reaching its full flower in the age to come, a joy that far surpasses theirs for Christ's sake. Let's pray. Father, what marvelous, indescribable work you've done for your people through your Son, as has already been prayed, we who were once dead in our trespasses and sins have been made alive together with Christ. Because the death edict did not get reversed toward your son. He faced death. He endured death so that his people to be rescued and given eternal life. Help us to rejoice. Help us to rejoice in the Lord always. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.